Matthew chapter 9, as we continue in our study of the book of Matthew this morning, we'll be looking at verses 1 through 8. A couple of quick things before we turn our attention to the text. Paraclete, you just sang it, do you know what it means? You said the Holy Spirit was our blessed paraclete. And whenever we sing such things that are based upon insights from the Greek language, I always think about the fact that there certainly are some who understand the reference and immediately latch on to it, but there certainly would be others who don't talk like that. And thereby, when you sing like that, it's good once in a while to take a moment and say, what does that mean? Paramedic. As a person that is called alongside to help you with medicine. Paralegal. That's a person that is called alongside to help you with law. Paraclete. That's the spirit of God who is called alongside you to help you in your spiritual life. He is the paraclete, like paramedic, like paralegal, paraclete. And if you're a believer, you have him indwelling in your soul. The other thing that I wanted just to mention is in our scripture reading this morning, we talked about the isles, the remote islands of the world, bowing the knee and submitting themselves to God. I got rather an unusual email this week from Joe Valentin. He's on some island out in the middle of nowhere. I don't know exactly where he is. But uh, he was uh, telling me about a sick co-worker for which he desired prayer, and he was telling me about the fact that the island, the island that he was on is absolutely remote. I mean, there's like nothing there. I mean, there's something there, but you can't see it. There's like nothing there. But, but he told me that the government over the island made sure that 3G service was installed, so he has excellent internet connections. <laughs> and so I, I think I got an email this week because the man was bored. I'm not sure, but I, I think that had something to do with it. But it's always interesting, you know, there's that old kids thing, where in the world is Carmen San Diego? And around here we say, where in the world is Joe Valentin? About the same thing. Matthew chapter 9, verses 1 to 8. And Jesus entered into a ship and passed over and came into his own city, Capernaum. And behold, they brought to him a man sick of the palsy, lying on a bed, and Jesus seeing their faith, the faith of the friends who brought him, said unto the sick of the palsy, Son, be of good cheer. Thy sins be forgiven thee. And behold, certain of the scribes said within themselves, This man blasphemeth. And Jesus, knowing their thoughts, said, Wherefore think ye evil in your hearts? For whether is easier to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. Stop right there just a moment, verse 5. I seldom, I seldom attempted to add any word to the scripture as read for clarity. But in that verse, I'd like to add two. And I'll come back to it in a moment, but let me read verse 5 again. For whether is easier for me 
to say, Thy sins be forgiven thee, or to say, Arise and walk. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath power, not dunamis, not ability, akousia, authority. But that ye may know that the Son of Man hath authority, power on earth to forgive sins, then saith he to the sick of the palsy, Arise, take up thy bed, and go into thine house. And he arose and departed to his house. But when the multitude saw it, they marveled and glorified God, which had given such power, again, authority, unto Men, we stop right there. Father, help us this morning as we work through this glorious account in which it is obvious that the Lord Jesus, by means of the scene, helps us to appreciate that which is for us unseen. Give us insight, stir our hearts, prepares to receive the text and application for the benefit of our own souls, regardless of our spiritual condition today, but especially draw upon the heart of the sinner unto salvation, we would ask in Jesus' name and for his blessed sake, amen. Blessed is he whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man unto whom the Lord imputeth not iniquity, in whose spirit there is no guile. Psalm 32. That verse is fresh perspective from the personal experience of the adulterous and murderous king, David. After repentance, before God for his multiplied sins concerning Bathsheba. King David came to understand the seriousness of vexation from within. Your greatest problem, my greatest problem, David's greatest problem, did not come from outside of him as a man. David's greatest problem came from within. He learned of his own spiritual and incurable disability the hard way. He learned that there is nothing worse and more debilitating than sin against thrice holy God. But the depth of sin's degradation is nothing when compared to the forgiveness or the height of God's forgiveness. Undeserving David was blessed of God by forgiveness. And today we consider a familiar account in which the great physician deals with the root problem of every man, which is indeed the incurable problem of sin. There is no cure for sin on earth apart from God's own 
intervention. I don't care how many cancers they eliminate. I don't care how many disabilities they eliminate. I don't care how many times people rejoice in the fact that we found a cure for sickness. There'll be another one. There'll be a different variant. There'll be another kind. There'll be another thing that will pop up here or pop up there. You and I have lived in a generation in which many times we've rejoiced of the ability of science to put a particular disease in the, in the tomb of no longer affecting us, like tuberculosis or polio, only to have some of those very diseases popping back up here and there. We are this morning finishing the second wave of recorded miracles that Matthew brings to bear as witness and demonstration of the Lord's own true identity. Matthew is presenting to us Jesus as not only King of the Jews, but as God out of heaven. We've seen both the progressive acknowledgement of that recognition among the disciples and the seeds of rejection to culminate, of course, at the cross. The disciples' question back in chapter 8, verse 27, is significant. They said, who can this be? And we learned something from those disciples in the ship when asking that question as to the identity of our Lord. That's the disciples' question. And then you have, in 829, the demon's question. And as we studied the demonic question, what have we to do with you, 829, uh, we learned something about the identity of the Lord Jesus Christ uh, from the way in which the demonic world, the spirit world, interacted with him. And so we learned something from the question of disciples. We learned something from the question of demons. And now in chapter 9, uh, we learn something at verse 5 from the question of deity, from the question of the Lord. When we added those two words in reading, for me, and again, I'll explain that briefly in just a few moments. Each of the questions, however, who can this man be? What have we to do with thee? And which is easier? Each of those questions forwards the messianic theme that Messiah is God in flesh to redeem us. At forwards, the uh, presentation of Matthew in causing our minds to stir in a particular sense of conviction and conclusion. Each of the questions forwards the messianic theme. Answering the first question proves the Lord's power and authority over the elements around us. He has power and authority over wind and wave and sea. Answering the second question proves the Lord's power and authority over the enemies against us. He has power over the elements. He has power over enemies. And today's answer will prove the Lord's power and authority over the evil that is within us. If you take the three questions and the focus of them, you have on display here something of the Lord's power and authority over the elements. 
his power and authority over enemies and his power and authority over the evil within us. Jesus does, as you are perceptive to see for yourself, Jesus does on this occasion that which man cannot see and then does what man can see to prove that he did the first. The insight gained is thrilling. And no one, even upon first reading, should miss the fact that on this occasion, the seen proves the unseen. And you and I are given a tremendous opportunity today in this text to work with both things we can see and things that we can't see, and then to exercise faith upon the uniqueness of what we can't see because of what we can see. And part of what we can see with open eyes is the record of the written word of God. And by the seen, we come to exercise reasonable faith in the unseen. Now, have you ever really stopped to think what it is that your neighbor really needs, that your doctor really needs, that your family members really need? I tell you that most people do not think ever about their real need, and most people cannot identify exactly what is the greatest need of their life. This guy and his friends thought that his great need, the guy in the bed, his great need on this day of record had to do with his physical disability and paralysis. I'm sure that was the thought of the guy on the bed. I'm sure that was the thought of the friends who brought him to Jesus. Here are friends that have a thought that this guy has a great need, and his great need is physical disability. But the Lord Jesus makes clear in this particular encounter that there was a greater need than the man's physical disability, and the Lord Jesus, of course, acted to meet that need first and then act upon the man in the way that the people that brought him would have desired, and to act upon the man in a way in which other people would know that Jesus had authority to act upon the physical, but that his great work and the greatest work had to do with the spiritual, that the seen realities of life introduce us to the unseen realities of life. What people really need is not management of their multiplied symptoms, but a cure. The great physician did not speak and act to manage sin's symptoms but to come and provide 
the cure. This is what this particular account is all about. It becomes crystal clear upon contemplation that Jesus understood the plan and the priority of the God of Israel exactly as prophecy said Messiah would understand it and bring it to the Jewish people. The Hebrew scriptures specify that the man of God's promise to the Jewish nation would be recognized by his exercise of authority and power in unheard of ways, physically and spiritually. Messiah would demonstrate power according to the Old Testament prophecy, over the natural curse placed upon the earth after the fall of man. Messiah would overrule the sinful curse on earth. Matthew, therefore, tells us of Jesus' power over wind and wave. Messiah would demonstrate power over the unseen world of evil forces that had long plagued the Jewish nation. Matthew therefore tells us of Jesus' power over demons vexing men. And by the way, just as an aside, as you uh, stand back in your mind and you wonder, how in the world can the things be happening there uh, in the West Bank and uh, in Gaza, and in, uh, and in northern Israel, how in the world can that all be? How can men be so stirred? How can men be so wrong? How can men be so uh, inappropriate and evil? Let me just remind you of the unseen world propping up that mess. We are not independent actors in this world. And the God we serve has power over the unseen world as well as the seen world. Amen. But the third prong of prophecy was that Messiah would demonstrate exclusive power, the exclusive power of God alone to forgive sin. Only God can forgive sin. The kingdom of God is characterized by forgiveness and redemption. The character of the kingdom of God is forgiveness and redemption. Matthew therefore tells us of Jesus forgiving the paralytic before healing his physical disability so that you and I can have insight into the unseen world. That which you and I cannot validate with our eyes by that which we can validate by our eyes. I printed for you in the outline of today in your bulletin the kingdom promise found in Isaiah 33, 24, in which inhabitants in the coming day of God's kingdom is promised, inhabitants in that kingdom do not ever say that they are physically sick. 
How many days have you gone since you woke up in the morning and said, I don't feel well. I'm sick today. Well, one of the uniquenesses of the kingdom of God on earth is that the people, the inhabitants in that kingdom, do not ever say, I am physically sick. And, the scripture says, they dwell perpetually in the blessed state of forgiveness. The verse says, and the inhabitant shall not say, I am sick. The people that dwell therein shall be forgiven. God's stated plan and priority for the Jewish people was and is to deal with their sins. In the view of the Creator, the greatest disability of people, the greatest disability of humanity is not physical or mental, but spiritual and relational regarding God. The greatest need is spiritual and relational between man and God. The Jewish religious leaders in attendance on the day of record were correct to think that only God has right to forgive sin. Their theology was correct on that day. And it is understandable, we might say, because of our knowledge, not justifiable, but it is certainly understandable that they would think Jesus blasphemous for saying that he had done so, that he had forgiven the man's sins. But God's own plan, God's own priority, as stated throughout the pages of Holy Writ, is to deal with sin that was long and faithfully communicated along with the specific attachment to the man of God's promise, the Messiah, and the coming of the kingdom of God. Attached to Messiah and ever attached to the kingdom of God on earth to come is this idea of forgiveness of sin. It is sobering to think that none of those thoughts, in truth, rose within the hearts of the scribes, even though they had repeated exposures to the power and the authority that was uh, uh, residing in the Lord Jesus. And that's why when I read the first verse of the ninth chapter, and it says that Jesus came back to his own city. I named the city so that you remember that Jesus' own city, as picked for ministry as an adult, was the city of Capernaum. And a number of the things that happened by way of miracles, a number of the things that happened by way of uh, proof of as, as to who he was and what he, and what he came to do, uh, came in that region of Galilee and came to that city of Capernaum. And so these particular scribes, they are not ignorant of some of the other things that Jesus had done. In fact, if you just back up one chapter, Matthew told us about multitudes of people coming to Peter's house. All of these scribes knew where Peter lived. 
All of these scribes had, had heard the personalized testimony of multitudes of sick people that had been healed by the Lord Jesus. Uh, there was layers and layers and layers of evidence piling up for them. And yet in their own protective sense of defensive uh, mechanism for their own uh, uh, selves and positions, uh, they resisted the thought as to who Jesus actually could be and what exactly he had come to do. And so in spite of those re repeated exposures to his power and his authority uh, residing, uh, they absolutely resist him. And in that sense, they're different from the disciples, who they surely at this point do not see it as you and I might see it today in our theological full-orb sense of embrace. But the disciples certainly are coming to it. They're certainly on their way to a happy day as they continue to respond to the Lord. But these guys, these scribes, these uh, theological scholars are just cold and heartless. And... Uh, and uh, indeed uh, resistant to the aspect of, of what the Lord is, is doing. And, uh, and uh, so they obviously call into question what Jesus says here about the unseen because it's easy for them to do so. And that brings us to the second thing this morning, which is Jesus possessed and faithfully demonstrated the very power and authority of God because Jesus is God in flesh. You and I can neither dismiss the sins of a person, nor can we heal their physical bodies. Both are not only difficult, but impossible for us. This morning as I made my way out of my study to the auditorium for this hour of preaching. I saw three of our teenagers sitting on the windowsill like they often do. And I went to them and I said, you know, there was a time when Paul was preaching when man was sitting in the windowsill and he fell out backwards and died and Paul ran outside and brought him back to life. I said, just a reminder to you this morning, I cannot do that. And the reason that I reminded those three teens that I cannot do that is because I cannot do that. You cannot do that. I cannot heal the sick. I cannot forgive your sins. That's why I call your attention again in verse 5 to the little word say. Jesus said, verse 5, for whether is easier to say. Jesus asked, which is easier to say? Let me say something. Your sins are forgiven you. I just said it. It was easy. Don't you think it was easy? Couldn't you say that too? Sure you could. You could look at me and say, your sins are forgiven you. I say to you, your sins are forgiven you. Are they? No. But I can sure say that. Uh, I, I could say, rise! Take up your bed and walk! And some of you would like to right now, but nonetheless, uh, I can't give you the power to walk if you can't walk. And so I can say, arise, take up your bed and walk. You can say, arise, take up in your bed and walk. But that doesn't mean somebody that couldn't walk 
would be able to arise and take up their bed and walk. You can say that a person's sins are forgiven thee, uh, but that doesn't mean their sins are forgiven them because it's not for you to say. 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 The question is, was it right for him to say it? And, of course, the answer is absolutely. And so that's why we added those words. For which is easier? For me. What is easier for God to say? Your sins are forgiven or rise, take up your bed and walk. Neither are hard for God. And it's not about the saying. It's about the power associated with that saying. I can palm a basketball and I can say, I'm going to dunk, but you're going to have to lower the rim. I can say a lot of things. And there's a word for that. It's called trash talking. And I'll tell you, a lot of preachers these days are trash talking. A lot of preachers these days are just saying things they can say. And it has nothing to do with the power of God or the authority of God based upon the word of God in a person's life. But when Jesus says, your sins are forgiven, guess what? Your sins are forgiven. And when Jesus says, get up and go home, you can get up and go home. Even if you came to the meeting as a paralytic. The ease of saying and enacting the thing is easy only for Jesus. Because his word cannot return Think of that. His word alone cannot return void. And you say, Pastor, you're, you're quoting a scripture about God. Yes, I am. God's word. Yes, I am. Here's God and here's his word. Your sins are forgiven. Here's God and here's his word. Rise, take up your bed and walk. His word cannot return void. Jerry and I can sit at home uh, in the parsonage this afternoon and think about the day tomorrow and she's going to go here and she's going to go there and I'm going to do this and I'm going to do that. But whenever we talk like that, we have to say, DV, Deo Valente, Lord willing, because I do not have the power within me to make it another day, nor do you, apart from the will of God. Therefore, every day, as human beings, we have to submit to God's will for the day, the week, the month, the year, the life. But everything that Jesus said needed no DV, for he is D. He is Deo and willing, God willing. The people in this text do not recognize him as God, but surely Matthew had a conviction that Jesus is God, and of course, that's why he wrote this for our reading and study. I would submit to you that what Jesus did, he still does. 
he confronted the evil condition within the man, having the power and authority to cure the sinful soul. And as we've said repeatedly, the rise and walk thing just validated the thing no one else could see. The thing bears evidence of the unseen thing. The unseen is proven by the seen. Just a little reminder of the doctrine of hemartiology and the doctrine of sin is appropriate here. David, as to his repentance after multiplied sins regarding Bathsheba, includes the staggering statement made to God against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Psalm 51.4 David failed not to recognize the devastating harm of his sin against the married woman that he sinfully took in adultery or the married man, her husband, that he had killed. To say that David did not sin against Bathsheba and her husband that would be a joke. And David knew that he'd sinned against that dear woman and her strong, mighty, soldiering husband. But David knew that while his sin involved many others, David knew that his sin was primarily against the perfectly righteous God. And so therefore, David said, against thee, thee only, have I sinned. Each and every sinful act by people is primarily against God. Therefore, God is the only one that can forgive and deal with his own penalty for sin, namely, eternal death. Physical sickness is one of the ways God communicates to humanity the seriousness of mankind's sin. And God uses sickness oftentimes to prepare the heart to receive the truth of his provision in Jesus Christ by the cross. And that, of course, brings us to the third thing this morning, which is that Jesus invoked the worship and praise of God, although not recognized as God, but man. The crowd was struck with awe. Verse 8, they glorified God in amazement as to what had happened. But then you have at the end of this account an interesting statement. Uh, they glorified God, uh, which had given, God, which had given such authority, such power unto men. They didn't even say, unto that man. They didn't even prescribe it specifically to Jesus himself. 
They simply had a good concept of God, and they had a pretty good concept of man. They had a, a good concept of theology, and they had a, a rather good concept of anthropology, but they had no sense of how those two things came together in the person of Christ. They had no real understanding of God-man, of Jesus the Christ. Now, you know that for us who are sitting here today and studying the scriptures, that our settled conviction is that Jesus called the Christ is the God-man. He is both fully. He possesses the power and authority to actually help those that are overwrought with sin and suffering. This is part of the reason why we chose, as our concluding hymn for the month, Jesus is the great friend of sinners. Because he can do what no other friends can do. Friends brought the paralytic to Jesus, needing Jesus to be a friend above all other friends. And in this case, in a way that those friends could not have known. I want you to see the big picture here. Matthew selected a few miracles out of potential thousands to demonstrate the correct identity of the Lord Jesus. We've now read and studied the accounts of his power and authority over the elements, over enemies, and over the evil within that threatens to doom the soul forever. The great physician desires to bring a cure to the most serious problem first. And that's part of why we call the advent of Jesus Christ on earth the first advent. He promises, certainly, he promises things that touch and affect the body and for earthly life to come. But everything, and I mean everything, starts when you allow the Lord Jesus to deal with the sin that is within you. He does not want to treat the symptoms of our sickness. He wants to cure the soul of sin. That's why he died for our sin and rose on the third day ascending on high with a promise to return because Jesus is God our Savior. Could help but think how that the unseen world is confirmed by that which is seen in this account, in this record before us. And I was thinking about the unseen reality that we often declare to people, both saved and unsaved. And I'm talking about God loves you. How many thousands of times have I said to a congregation, have I said to a saint, have I said to a sinner, God loves you. But how do you know that he does? 
What is it that proves that unseen reality in my life and yours? Well, as our recent study in Hebrews says it, Jesus once in the end of the world hath appeared in the flesh to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. How do you know? How do I know that God loves us? Jesus died for our sins. Jesus is the friend of sinners. Father, help us then as we quiet our hearts just a moment before thee to think on these things in application to our own souls and to bring to bear thy Spirit's prompting through the Word to the application of our own hearts. Help us then, Lord, as we conclude. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Two hundred.